Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Greg Garcia, Emmy Award-winning acceptance speech, and quote from this week's episode. I got a kiss from Cloris Leachman. That's nice. Um, I don't have time to thank everybody that I should, so I thought it'd be easier if I mentioned a few people I do not want to thank. My eighth grade social studies teacher told me to sit down and shut up because I wasn't funny. No thank you, Mr. McAdoo. My boss, when I was a PA on the show Step by Step, who made me clean gum off the executive producer's shoe, no thank you, ma'am. Tonight, I do not share this with you. (laughs) And finally, God, I'm sure you're responsible in some way, but you took my hair, and that's not cool, man. (laughs) Not cool. You want to be the positive force in the room. There are people that get jobs on writing staffs that do not contribute as much as other people because you want them in the room. You are going to war with a blank page every week, and you need positivity. You need the guy at 2 in the morning who's going to uh, pour water all over his body like he's doing a flash dance routine just to get the room to wake up, you know. Um, You want that. And so... I would say positivity is a huge, huge asset if you can have it. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Hope you're having a great holiday. Hope you had a great New Year's and whatever you celebrate around the December area. I'm so grateful to all of you. Thank you for all of the responses, all the emails and texts and all the ways you reach out to me. Very, very grateful. Thank you so much. If you need to reach me at any time, you can do so at Barry Katz at Instagram or Twitter, or you can go to barrycats.com and reach me there as well. And I'll be glad to get back to you. And I'm very excited about the episode today. Part one on Monday was really, really extraordinary with Greg Garcia. And part two today will prove no different. 
this guy is a really, really, really special man. And as I sit across from Greg Garcia, one of the things I think about all the time is how you adjust in the career you're in. How do you navigate? Well, in his case, he started off on the lowest possible levels of shows. Oftentimes, in some instances, taking unnecessary shit from people who had higher credits and making more than him. But he stuck with it, didn't self-destruct, just kept his head down, kept working, kept moving forward, kept getting knocked down, getting up, and really starting to do great work. The issue being the great work he was doing a lot of times was inconsistent, in my opinion, with how his mind really wanted to work. So even though he worked as a consulting producer on Family Guy, where I feel like his mind worked more in that way, like Seth MacFarlane's, he also worked on shows like Step by Step and Family Matters which were shows that were very family-oriented, like a fastball right down the middle. No twists and turns, no edginess, just great family fare. So the first show that he got going that really did well that he created was Yes, Dear, which was a show that was not critically acclaimed, got bashed by all the media, but somehow, some way, was a top 20 show on CBS for over six years and ran for 122 episodes. But what happens is, once you get something going that goes over 100 episodes and goes to syndication, a lot of times you're known and embraced for that kind of comedy. But what's interesting about Greg Garcia is he realized that he wanted to do a different kind of comedy. And he took a chance and he went out there with something new and unique and special. And that's how My Name is Earl got going. And that paved the way for the Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing in a Comedy Series and the People's Choice Award for New Favorite TV Show and the GLAAD Award and the Humanitas Award for the pilot episodes and the Television Critics Award for Best New Comedy, and a Golden Globe nomination for Best Television Series, and four WGA nominations for Outstanding Achievement in Writing for Comedy. He took the risk. He took the chance. He stepped out of his lane. Not recommended for most people. But he wanted to do this kind of comedy. And he made it work. And it went the distance, 96 episodes. How many people can say that? And that paved the way for the next show that he did, Raising Hope, which was an incredibly unique and different show again. So he did what he needed to do. He did what meant something to him. He took the risk. He got out of his lane. And he made it happen because that's what he wanted. Risk versus reward. Normally, if you're doing what you love and what's on your mind and on your brain, it becomes reward. And I can guarantee you, 
if you follow these kinds of steps in your career, in your life, you'll have the possibility of the kind of career that Greg Garcia has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. I want to go way, way back. Okay. You're smiling because you know the drill. Yeah. Take me back to where you grew up, the socioeconomic dynamic, who was in your house that maybe was a little bit funny, and what were your inspirations of getting into this crazy business? Sure. So I grew up in Arlington, Virginia um, with uh, my mother and my father and my older sister, and comedy was always something that was in our house. My 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 mother's very funny. My father's funny, and they're both funny in completely different ways. My father's very dry and will sneak up on you with something very funny, and my mother's a little bit more um, acerbic with her humor and uh, and something I always enjoyed. And my sister was funny, so just as a base, you know, we would all make fun of each other. There was the freedom to do that, and you really could sharpen your skills to come up with a joke uh, in that situation. And I just loved television. I loved sitcoms and only sitcoms, and that's what I watched. What did you watch? So I would come home after school and watch things that were in almost everything I watched was in syndication at the time because. Um, my bedtime was, you know, probably eight o'clock or something. So, so these I'd, are the shows that were from seven to seven thirty and seven thirty to eight. Okay. I'd get home; at, they'd, they'd be stuff during the day at like three thirty and stuff. That's when we would start with like Father Knows Best and Leave It to Beaver and I Love Lucy and Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and What's Happening Now and uh, or What's Happening <laughs> and uh, uh, Good Times and Sanford and Son. And I just couldn't get enough of them to the point where I would come home, I would watch. Immediately after school, I'd watch until dinner time, and then dinner time would be um, usually be um, right before Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune came on. Like we'd eat around six, and those shows would come on at seven. So at six, say Sanford and Son, and then The Jeffersons was on at six thirty. I had a little cassette recorder because we didn't have a VCR, and I had a cassette recorder, and I would audio record. The Jeffersons. And then halfway through dinner, I would run downstairs and flip the tape because it was a half hour tape and I'd auto record Sanford and Son or whatever the shows were on. Then I'd go back downstairs and during Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, which I couldn't care less about, um, I would just listen to the shows that I taped because I couldn't get enough of them. And looking back on it, I think that's a real tool to direct because all I had was the words. I had to block the whole scene in my head. I had to figure out where people were standing, what they were doing with their faces, you know, what have you. Um, and I would do that on a nightly basis. This is why you have stand up in your blood, and I'll explain. When you audio record a sitcom, let's just take one joke. Okay. Mm -hmm. What happens? For the most part, the simplest thing that happens is the straight man in the show delivers the setup to the line. Then there's the slight timing pause, and then the guy who's the funny man in the show delivers the line. 
sometimes there's another character first setup another person says something second setup to build the tension even more little space beat funny man delivers the punchline so when you listen to those audio tapes technically speaking you're listening to stand-up comedy because they're in front of a live audience yeah you start to learn those rhythms and so that was much of my childhood was watching TV. And, you know, at the time, I'm sure my parents thought this is this kid's wasting his life away in our basement. But, you know, for me, it hopefully, you know, it, it luckily, luck, luckily uh, turned out. But so that was my high school. I would work uh, for my uncle's lawn business uh, in the summer and after school uh, as I got older. Um, I worked as a, a gas station attendant. You know, I, I just had hard working jobs that that uh, and knew that I would go to college, but I didn't know where I would go to college. And my grades were fine; they weren't great. I was always kind of the class clown and not necessarily applying myself a hundred percent. And I got into a school called Frostburg State University, which is in Western Maryland, and um, I went there and had a blast for four years. What was your major? My major was speech communications, which I picked because it was easy. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. They, it was an easy major. There wasn't a lot of credits to it. I got to take a lot of other random classes that I enjoyed doing. But I I, I actually had, I think I learned more from, I got a uh, uh, show on the radio station, you know. I wrote a column in the newspaper, an advice column, where I would write both the questions and the answers. So it was just a comedy uh, advice column. You know, I, I joined a fraternity and, and became like the social chairman of the fraternity and stuff like that. And so I, I think I learned a lot more uh, outside the classes than I did inside the classes, which, which could, can be the case for certain people. And I was waiting to uh, register for classes one day. And I needed one more class. And a guy was standing next to me, this guy named Tom Abbott. And he was uh, one of my roommates in this house I was living in. And he said, I said, what are you taking? I need one more class. He goes, well, I'm taking this, 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 and I'm taking this television writing class. And I go, well, what is that? And they go, well, you write a sitcom script. And what happens is if you write it and it's good, they send it to California, to Los Angeles. And then they pick somebody and they fly them to Los Angeles. And you get to go hang out on a sitcom for a, for, for a week. And I go, well, this is amazing. This is like I'm taking this class because I love sitcoms. That would be a dream come true to actually go to Cal. I mean, I never thought about going to California. It was so far away. At the time, I thought I'm going to work in radio. My summers, I would work at a, a radio station in Washington, D.C., driving this van around and going to swimming pools and calling up and saying, hey, I'm Greg. I'm at this swimming pool. And I thought, all right, radio, maybe that's what I'm going to end up doing. But this, a world into TV, that's huge. So I took the class, and the night before I was supposed to turn in my script, I sat down and I thought, okay, I should write a script. <laughs> and I took some uh, caffeine pills, and I just started writing a Cheers script. And it came relatively easy for me. Now, I'm sure the script is terrible if we dug it up and read it today, but the process came easy. And from watching all those shows... I knew what the rhythms were. I knew what a story was. I knew how they told a story. And we had a table read of it the next day, and I got a bunch of laughs, and that felt amazing. And the teacher gave me some notes, and she said, you have to change this, that, and another thing. And I didn't agree with any of her notes. And so I didn't take them, and I turned it back in. And she Not said, one note. I didn't take one of her notes. 
because and and we had a conversation about it she said you didn't take any of my notes and i said i know i just don't feel you know the show as well as i do she had said some things that like she said the waitress carla never hit anybody over the head with her tray in my script and that needs to happen it happens in every episode and i i've watched many episodes of cheers and it doesn't happen in every episode and so she said well you didn't take any of my notes if you were if i was the executive producer of a television show you'd have to take my notes and i said absolutely and if you were the executive producer of a television show, I would take your notes. No disrespect, but you're you're not. And if we're going to send this to Los Angeles, I need it to be what I believe in 100%. Because if I do your notes and I don't get picked, I'll always question what would have happened. And she said, fine. And she gave me a C- minus because I didn't take her notes. And then I was one of two people in the country picked by Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers had been kind of sponsoring this program at a lot of different universities. So I got picked and uh, all was forgiven by the teacher. So you get picked. What's the first conversation that happens when she tells you? Well, she's just thrilled. She doesn't say she was right and I didn't say she was wrong. And it was, I learned... Two things in that moment, really. Uh, one, that you have to trust your instincts. And, you know, a lot of people tell me like, oh, the, net, the network's giving me notes and I don't want to do it and don't want to do it. And then I said, well, then don't do it. No one's going to come over to you. That's the secret with people and, and notes from networks and studios. Nobody comes, follows you back to your office and pushes your fingers on the keyboard and makes you take their notes. You don't have to do it. Now, there's a risk involved because you better be right because if you keep not taking your notes and you're wrong, you're not going to get the next job. You can you can take their notes and fail and most likely you're going to get the next job, you know, if you're a nice guy and you're and you're being you're being you're fun to work with for our audience. Yes. Okay. I would love you to let them know this percentage. You take your average note session with the executives. What happens for those of you who don't know? You do a network run-through, a studio run-through. Sometimes they're at the same time. Sometimes they're at different times. Everybody does things different. Let's just pretend they're at the same time. The studio and the network are mm -hmm. there, and you get your notes. Let's pretend there's 25 notes. Okay. One note might be the standards and practices guy saying, Dick here, could you say junk or something? Yeah. And another note might be bigger, like, hey, listen, I think her tone here should be more at stake. So out of 100% pie of all the notes, you know they don't remember everything. They're jumping from show to show, sure. table read to table read. They're going notes. You know as the showrunner, they're never going to remember all the notes. Do you listen intently and think to yourself okay well this is what i know they're going to remember i know they're going to remember the thing they tell me to change at the end i know they're going to remember the standards and practice thing and i know they're going to remember this and do you have an instinct for what they're not going to know is changed or not and you just keep it the way it is and what percentage do you actually change on average and take the risk that they're not going to remember what they said. The honest answer to this is I'd have to say it has to be a case-by-case -case basis because I never go – I'm a little different with notes, I think, and maybe you'll find some executives who disagree with this statement. But there are certain writers who take a lot of pride in not taking notes, and they boast about it. And 
you know, I've heard stories about very big showrunners who boast about like, oh, I made that executive look so stupid in the note session. I just started grilling them and they couldn't explain their note and I made them look like a fool. But these people are just people that want to be involved in show business and be part of the process and go home to their wife or husband and say, hey, that was me. I got that. You know, I fixed this thing today and whatever. So to belittle them in the process, it just makes never made any sense to me whatsoever. And so when you say percentage of notes, I listen to every single note. I have no, I'm not threatened by notes. I listen to every single one of them. And yes, you know, if this is a note they've given two or three times, they're not, they're not letting go on this one or the way they gave it, you know this is important to them. And then you have to just decide, can you make this note work because you know it's going to be better for you? Or if you truly don't believe in it, then you have to face the consequences if you're not gonna do it. To me, it's always about, does it make sense? And usually my process of getting notes is, you walk in, you get these notes, and you just feel beat up. And your first instinct is to just not wanna do any of them because it's just more work. You feel like you ran a marathon and then someone's telling you, go ahead and do another 10 miles. You want to be done. You want someone to go, this is perfect. Don't change a thing, which never will happen because you can always make it better. So my process usually is I just try to be very, Gary Marshall told me, you know, at one time we had lunch and, and, and he said notes, he goes, polite and vague, just be polite and vague. That that, thank you, that sounds interesting. We're gonna take a look at that. Polite and vague. You don't need to fight, you don't need to do anything. Then, uh, you know, absorb it all, go away. And nine times out of 10, a note that I felt was just stupid and frustrating forces me to think about the area they're talking about. And even if I don't do anything familiar to exactly what they suggested, there was a problem there in their eyes. And by looking at it, and throwing my ego to the side and going, okay, what can I make better? I usually come up with something I like better, you know? So to me, it's not a numbers game of the notes. It's just which ones make sense, which do I agree with, which can I think about longer and ultimately agree with, and uh, and you go from there. And it's, uh, it's, it's a part of the process that I know a lot of people don't like, but it's, it's, it's important. It's important to have um, other people challenge you on things because it's either going to make it stronger because you're going to keep what you have but you're going to strengthen it in a way that they cannot come after you with this note anymore and then sometimes that takes care of the note or it's going to force you to go yeah maybe i was a little lazy here or i can see how that doesn't work you know the great alan kirschenbaum taught me something on yes dear where we would do a table read and before they gave us any notes we would give our notes and a lot of times we would have more notes than they had. Or as we're saying our notes, they're crossing off their notes because we had the same stuff. So we would start that and then their notes would be less. Or maybe we would say something that wasn't necessarily what they had, but it blew what they had out of the water because if we're gonna change that, it doesn't necessarily, their notes don't apply anymore. And one time somebody said to Alan, they said, you know, it's funny, like, we love it. Like a lot of times you guys have more notes than we do. And Alan said, yeah, we want it to be good. We're not, we're not, we're not going to like go back to our office if you had no notes and go, we fooled them. It's terrible. And we fooled them. We can all go home, you know? So, um, to me, it's, it's a collaborative process, even with the studio and network. Tell me the one time in your life that was the closest after the table read to somebody walking up to you and saying, 
That's perfect. We have no notes. Oh, geez. Well, it would be guestbook. Anything on the guestbook. They've been uh, very hands-off. And because the show is what it is and it is different every week, it kind of disarms them as far as giving notes because they don't... What happens with a sitcom is you give them uh, an outline and they read the outline and they have notes on the outline. And it's not... The dialogue isn't there and it's, it's just basic beats and they are going to have their way of perceiving this show. And so they give you notes, and then they want to see in the next stage, did you take their notes? How did you take their notes? May, that's not exactly the way I wanted notes. So then now they have more notes. And also maybe their perception from the outline doesn't match up with what your perception of the final script is going to be. So that in itself kind of gives you a lot of notes. Plus, you have characters that you see week to week. So there's a lot of this doesn't feel like this character. Do we like this character at the end of this episode? She doesn't feel likable if she says this. And you have to protect these characters. And a lot of notes come from that. The guest book, they don't get an outline. They don't get a beat sheet. Aren't you writing that mostly? I write them all myself. That's what I'm saying. Same with Victor Levin when he did Destination Wedding with Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder. I said to him, so you finished the script. You're really excited about it. Do you give it to your friends to read? He said, what does August Wilson give his plays to his friends? (laughs) Well, that's funny because to me, that's two different things that you're talking about. First of all, the idea of the guest book not getting a lot of notes like my other shows were is they don't get a preconceived notion of what it's going to be. They don't know the story. They don't know the characters. I just deliver them a script. So... They're just reading that script, and they don't know these characters, so it's not like this guy wouldn't say this, and who cares if we like him at the end of the episode? They're not coming back next week. It's a little movie. So I think that, for that, is why I don't get a lot of notes. Now, as far as like an actor who I have a very open policy with actors, if, if, you're, if you feel like it's wrong, let's talk about it, because I didn't toil over every single line. I mean, I try the best I can, but... You're the one saying it. So if it seems weird or you have something funnier, let's talk about that. You love comedy and you love stand-up comedians. You love people that have a comedy background. On the guest book, there's been many people with comedy backgrounds. Sometimes you have somebody come in and you've written this great thing and they just are doing their own lines. And it's 100% funnier. And then, great, let's do that. You're working with Matt Walsh, who, who who created UCB. Like, I don't want that guy to improv. Of course, go for it. Let's do it. Now, if you come up against something where it's like, okay, that's good, but I like what I have too, shoot it twice. Shoot it twice. And, I, and, I, and the people that I've worked with a lot know that it's not just a bullshit, okay, yeah, we'll get yours too once I get mine. I'm going to be in editing and the editors are going to, I don't even tell the editors what takes to put in. So that's the first line of defense right there. Which one got in? Which one does the editor think who wasn't on stage think is the funniest? You know, he doesn't know who came up with that joke. He's not worried about bruising my ego. So that's the first thing, you know. So uh, I have no problem with that whatsoever. I, I want it to be a collaborative process. I want everybody to uh, to feel to feel welcome to contribute. But at the same time, if it's something that I feel strongly about, we're gonna at least get one my way uh, before before we move on to something else. And then the Vic Levin of it all, um, the first thing I do is give my scripts to 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 about four or five people that I really trust that are hilarious. Um, I just did a rewrite for a pilot for CBS. First thing I did before I showed it to anybody was send it to three or four people. Um, Because when you're stuck in a room by yourself, you know, it's not like a 
I used to enjoy being on like My Name is Earl and Raising Hope and you're in the room with people and you're bouncing off ideas and you have half a joke but the other person makes it better or completes it. Um, so, so no, me, I'll give it to whoever wants to take a look. If the gardener wants to take a look at it and give me a couple of jokes, great. I don't have to take them if I don't want to. So I'm, I'm fine with all that. I look at the guest book and if I'm a network who is cost conscious and Turner is not normally cost conscious they spend a lot of money mm-hmm. but i look at a show with somebody coming in the pitch and i look at a slot there's a budget for the amount of shows they have the comedy shows and the dramas mm-hmm. and there's that budget so let's say 200 million dollars yeah. or whatever it is they look at how many shows they have to do what they have to program and the average money per show it's like also when you're casting a show you have a budget for the cast so if Cloris Leachman is asking for $50,000 an episode even though she's 85 she feels like hey i used to get 150 an episode 250 give me this then you think okay maybe i have to hire an unknown actor for this give them 25,000 and then I can give 35000 this one. It's the same with the pieces of the network schedule. Mm-hmm. So if I've got shows I want to pick up and I realize, oh, God, what's left in the budget? I only have this much per episode. It seems to me like your show with the network that was cost conscious could shoot a show in that one location with one writer writing every episode and not a team of 20 writers. Yeah. It's a chance for the show to make money quicker if it gets to the point of syndication. Absolutely. The, the guest book is it at least a million dollars cheaper an episode to make than the network shows that I make. But there's a reason for that. Um, there's a, an order is 10 episodes. We don't do more than 10 episodes at a time. On a network show, you're doing 22, 24 or more episodes. And for our audience, what happens is when you hire guest stars, even if they're celebrities. Now, if you're talking about a show like Louie, which is was started at 325000 an episode, he was the only star getting paid regular money. The other people were guest stars on day rates, minimum mm-hmm. wage, $925 a day or whatever it was. And you took the chance if you lost them or if you didn't lose them. When you're dealing with celebrity guest stars, my thought process is, you tell me if I'm wrong, what I think they try to do, if they could, is a favored nations, which favored nations means it's one fee for that guest star. So let's just pretend it's $25,000, two days maximum. If you do one day or two days, we'll give you $25,000 or we'll give you a day per day or whatever it is. And so that person, Pete Davis, doesn't run into Michael Rappaport and say, hey, what the fuck? You made 50,000 and I made 25,000. And you have to stick to it because so so we only do 10 episodes at a time, which means I have the time to write all of them. Uh, Could not do that on a network show. You'd you'd run out of steam and, and, and run out of scripts. So not having a writing staff. That's a huge budget saving. You know, that's $120,000, an episode that you're saving. Um, our regular casts aren't, um, aren't we, we don't have like giant big name. like So our, our above the line is pretty small. And like you said, our guest cast comes in for a week. We try to get them in and out as soon as we can. And we pay them a very low fee. And that's what we pay everybody. 
And that's that. And it's a combination of people I've worked with in the past who are friends that are like, yeah, this is going to be fun. It's one week. Or people like Pete Davidson or Jenna Fisher or Matt Walsh or Michael K. Williams from The Wire, who I've never worked with in the past. But we just send them the script and we say, look, this is the deal. This is the script. This is the character. If you think you'd want to have fun and come do this, then great. This is what we pay. We don't go a penny over it because, like you said, we can't have somebody running into somebody else. As soon as you start negotiating, it's over. You, the, the model falls apart. And you lose some people because of that. But a lot of people are like, I get it. This, is, this isn't a network show. It's a lower budget show. And we hear it's fun, so they come and they do the show. So, so far we've been very lucky with that. But uh, even, you know, in the case of we needed um, Oliver Hudson to do the last episode of, uh, of uh, the guest book in season two, and he's on a show with Jenna Fisher. And so when we contacted him, he said to Jenna Fisher, wait, you did this show last year. And she was like, yeah, it was a blast. It was so much fun, blah, 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 blah. And that's a word of mouth helped get him to go, absolutely, let's do this. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Hey everybody, I've talked a lot about AquaTrue on this show, the amazing water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler in your home that purifies the water in a way that no one else has ever figured out how to do. It's this incredibly efficient piece of equipment and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just take it out of the box, plug it in, put your tap water in it, and it takes out all the bad chemicals and gives you the best and healthiest water you can ever imagine, saving you thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store. I have one at my house and office, and everyone who uses it orders one, and you should too. Just go to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, and if you act now, you can get $100 off and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had, and never waste another dollar buying bottled water again. And I just want to share another groundbreaking product with you. It's a revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates. And I'm talking about the air doctor. The air inside our home can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. But with the air doctor, you don't have to worry about it as it removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses and so many other contaminants that circulate throughout our homes. Till now, the only thing that could come close to this product were systems that cost thousands of dollars. 
but now you can get the Air Doctor for a fraction of the cost, normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your home. I'm telling you, I have this product. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some yes. names. Let's do it. You tell me what comes to mind. Could okay. be a word, a sentence, a story. Okay. Anything. All right. Burt Reynolds. Oh. My childhood hero, my absolute childhood hero. The first thing I did when I had any money was to buy a, uh, a 1977 Trans Am with the with the eagle on the hood, banded edition. Jason Lee and I bonded over our love for Burt Reynolds, so we had him on the show. Um, he was a hoot. He was there for three days. He had a scene with Ethan Suplee where he was supposed to slap him, and he wouldn't pull a punch. Even during rehearsal, he was slapping Ethan Suplee as hard as he could. At a certain point, I said to Ethan, I'm going to give you $50 for every time he slaps you from here on out. And when we were done with the scene, I, I think I gave Ethan $950 in cash. Um, a thrill to work with, a powerhouse. He signed my Trans Am, and about four months ago, the car detail guy uh, scrubbed the signature <laughs> off of the car, of the center console, and it was a... Uh, it was a rough morning for me. but uh, And then he was going to re-sign it in October when he was here shooting Tarantino's movie. And as we know, Bert is uh, no longer with us. But uh, but I will always have the memory of that faded signature on my car and the memory of working with Bert. Billy Gardell. Oh, one of the greatest guys in this business. I met Billy when he had a deal at 20th Century Fox and I was meeting with comedians and it was a time where I, I was having all these meetings, meetings. I remember Mitch Hedberg was one of the meetings and I would just go to this diner near my house and I remember Billy sitting down. Billy's not a small guy and, uh, and he ordered like uh, four orders of bacon and a, and a steak or something and he told me he was on this Atkins diet and we had a great time and for whatever reason, he claims that his manager told him... Uh, not to do something with me, but I, I don't know if that's actually true or not. He laughs about it. For whatever reason, we didn't do anything, but then we were shooting an episode of Yes, Dear, and he somebody's yelling at me from the stands, and it was Billy Gardell, and he was there to see his friend who was had a one-line part in the show. And I ended up talking to him for a little bit, and he also knew Joey Gutierrez, who worked on the show. So we were all talking for a little bit, and I left thinking, God, that guy's funny. I just got reminded, just because he came to the to the to the to the um to the show I was reminded of how funny that guy was and he ended up being in multiple 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 episodes of Yes Dear after that um then he did some uh, uh Earls and uh and uh and other stuff as well and he remains a good friend and just the kind of guy you go to see him do stand up and it's just like that is a stand-up like that is there is no denying that guy is a pro i've seen him in vegas a few times and it's just amazing how he brings down the house love him jason lee jason lee we had such a great run on earl and i think one of my 
favorite stories about Jason is how he became Earl. We had a meeting, and like I said, we bonded over Burt Reynolds. I had some posters in my office. We were talking about, we had this great meeting, and they were negotiating his deal, and on a Friday night, they told me, just go to bed. It's all figured out. We just got to figure out the last little bit, and I woke up on Saturday morning to an email that said, Jason's out. He doesn't want to do the show. And I thought, what the hell happened? So I called his manager, who was Giovanni Ribisi's mother, Gay Ribisi, and I said, what happened? And she said, you know, he just kept thinking about it, and he was nervous, and he hasn't done a TV show, and he's just done movies, and he, he doesn't, he just, he feels terrible, but he doesn't want to do it. And I said, okay, um, well, what are you going to do? I can't, you know, I can't, I don't want to force somebody to do something. I think he would have been perfect in it. And the next day, I took my son to an art uh, thing in Santa Monica, my oldest son, and he was a little guy at the time, and, and, and we went down, and I'm walking around the art festival there, and I see Giovanni Ribisi, and I go, well, this is weird, so I take it upon myself, I go over, I go, Giovanni, I just, I just want to say hi, I don't want to bother you, but I'm a fan of yours, but more important, I was on the phone all day yesterday with your mother, uh, talking about Jason Lee, so this was weird that you heard, he goes, well, my mom's right here, and he goes, mom, so he calls over to his mom, and, and we go over, and the mom is over there with a couple other people and uh, she goes oh my god I don't believe this this is so nice meet you in person Jason is he was going to come today you would have seen him but he's all freaked out still about this he went to the beach for the day this is my daughter this is my son-in-law Beck and I'm like oh hello Beck <laughs> and it was just this surreal experience and then we went to and I said goodbye to them I took my son to a basketball game. We were down while we were down in Santa Monica. There was a show big biz basketball game, and uh, uh, Jaleel White Urkel was in the game, and he said, "Come watch me play in this basketball game." So I went and took my son. While we're watching, my phone rings. It's Gay Rabisi. She goes, "I just told Jason that you were at the art thing. He feels this is fate. He wants to do the show." And I said, "Well, I tell you what, that's amazing news to me. I don't want him to do the show because I went to the art festival." have him call me tomorrow and let's talk about this. And he called me and we had an honest conversation. He says, I freaked out. He goes, I freaked out. I didn't want to do TV, I thought. But then I thought if I want to do TV, it should be this. Because if I was going to do TV, it should be this. And that was that. And then he became Earl. So if I had, you know, my son wasn't into art, we, uh, we wouldn't... Uh, we wouldn't have an Earl. Did he freak out and want to back out of the show when the network wanted him to, <laughs> with the mustache well, situation? that's the other funny thing. So, so we decided in that moment, we're going to do the show we want to do. We're not going to be apologetic about it. We're going to do the show we want to do because we knew it was a different show. We knew it was different for NBC. It was a chance they were taking. And we were taking chances, and we wanted to do it. And the director was on board with that as well. So it came down to he had a beard, and we knew that we wanted – we wanted the Kevin Smith Jason Lee. We didn't want Alvin and the Chipmunks Jason Lee, which he hadn't done at the time, but the cleaned up, you know, that's a, the legitimate Jason Lee, but that's not the Earl we wanted to do. And I think NBC wanted that Jason Lee. They wanted the more Jonathan Silverman uh, looking version of, of, of Jason Lee. And none of us wanted to do that. So we sent over a picture of him with a, with a beard and they said, no, he can't have a beard. And Jason said to me early on, I'm funny with a mustache. I'll be funny with a mustache. I said, all right, well, let's just, let's get there, you know. 
So we then shaved the beard into a, a not a goatee, but people call it a goatee, like a Van Dyke with the mustache and the, and the hair on the chin. And we sent that over, and they still, the studio and network, no, 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 no. We don't want facial hair. And I was like, well, he needs facial hair. No. I said, well, what about this? And I sent a picture of him just covering up his chin, just showing the mustache. Because I knew once I shaved anything, we were shooting in four days at this point, and it wouldn't grow back. And I'm sure that was their plan to just get me down to nothing. And they said, no, nobody on TV has ever been successful with a mustache. So then I send them a long list of pictures of Tom Selleck, Sipowitz on 90, you know, NYPD Blue, Dr. Phil, everybody under the sun. And that annoyed them. And we went back and forth and back and forth. And finally, they said on a Sunday night, late at night, they said, fine, he can have a mustache, but you got to cut that hair. That hair is too unruly. You got to cut that hair. So... I didn't even say anything to Jason about that. We were out in Beaumont, an hour and a half away from L.A., shooting our first scene at this uh, quickie mart place. And, of course, you know, Dana Walden and Kevin Riley, all the people I was talking about. Dana Walden was the co-president of 20th Century Fox, and Kevin Riley was the president of NBC. NBC, yes. They weren't there at, at 6 in the morning when we were shooting out in Beaumont, nor, than they, nor, nor should they be, but... The people that worked for them were, and they knew all these conversations. And so we were rehearsing and setting up the stuff, and they, they were kind of coming up to me going, wait, what, what, his hair, you got to cut his hair, you got to cut his hair. And I said, really? It looks like, no, you got to cut it, you got to cut it, trust me, no, come on, we're going to get yelled at. And I go, okay, okay. So I went over to Jason, and I said, Jason, come with me. Uh, there's a discussion about your hair. And the whole way to the makeup trailer, he's saying, I don't want to cut the hair, that's ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. I go, I'm just listening. We go in, we shut the door, and I said, look, just sit down. Sit here for 10 minutes. We're not, no one's cutting your hair. Sit here for 10 minutes. And I told the AD and the director, I said, be ready to shoot as soon as we walk on set. And everybody was ready. And we walked in. He, I told Jason, don't look at anybody. Don't talk to anybody. Walk directly to set. Hit your mark. He's going to yell action. And we start. And that's what we did. So he walked over. They yelled action. He started now. I went to Video Village and the executives were going, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, did you cut his hair? And I go, yeah, we cut his hair. And they're like, it, it looks the same. I go, we cut like an inch and a half off. How much do you want us to cut off? Like, it's, come on. And then the scene just went. And then about a half hour later, they go, we don't, the, the hair's not, sh-. I go, look, it's not going to match anything we shot in the morning. If there's a problem, just let me know and I'll deal with it. And then it was forgotten, you know. But, uh, but yeah, Jason wasn't happy about that, but we got through it. How many times as a showrunner do you have to lie? Uh, you have to lie from occasion, you know, uh, uh, once in a while. You try not to. You try to be as honest as you can. But that's. But also, I, I also take the job seriously as a showrunner that sometimes they've hired you to protect them from themselves, you know? And I've had writers who argue with me to the point where finally I'm like, okay, wait, you are right. And I like that. I like that kind of pushback. And... I think it's give and take with the network and studio. And as I said earlier, I enjoy the note process. But when you do decide on something and you really in your gut know that this is what it's supposed to be, you got to stick with it. And then it's your job to protect them from themselves. Norm McDonald. Oh, Norm. One of the great stand-ups and a hero of mine. And 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 after we had Burt Reynolds on, on My Name is Earl, we wanted to have him back. We had a story that had him back. And now, as great as Burt is and fun, he was a bit of a handful towards the end of the week. You know, he was there for three days, and the first day Burt was telling stories, and it was fantastic. It was a dream come true. I'm sitting with him at Video Village. He's telling me stories about Hooper, and I'm asking him all kinds of questions, and it's great. Day two, 
He's telling me the exact same stories. And I'm trying to let him know that he's telling me the same stories, but he's not catching on that. And he's a little bit distant. Day three, he had had enough. He seemed like he was a little bit off. And it was, and we thought, okay, this was fun. We had our experience with Burt Reynolds. Maybe, maybe not a second time. So then someone had the idea. We should see if Norm will come play his son and do his Burt Reynolds impersonation. So, um... Lucky for us, Norm said he'll do it, and he came in, and it was funny because to a lesser degree, the first day Norm's telling us stories, the second day he was a little bit off, the third (laughs) night he had some kind of heart thing or something, and I was actually in a garage with him at the end of the night. He was complaining of heart pains, but he was still cracking jokes, and ultimately he was fine, but he got into a car and left, and I kept checking deadline the next day to see if he was even alive. But it was funny because in a, in a very odd way, it was almost a similar, similar experience. But Norm did come back and do another episode and just so funny. And, you know, and, and just uh, his new show on Netflix, it's just amazing. So that was, that was one of those where I get intimidated as soon as I see the guy because I have so much respect for him. Cloris Leachman. Cloris Leachman, an absolute kook. Uh, you know, the mistake somebody can make with Cloris Leachman is to discount her suggestions because she is legitimately crazy in a fun way most of the time. So it's easy to like go, okay, whatever she's doing, just like, you know, whatever. But if you truly listen to her, you're like, oh, wait, that is funnier. We are going to do that. But she's a handful. I mean, and she'd be the first to admit it. And she likes to be the center of attention and on stage even when she's behind the camera. If she's at a, if you see her at a restaurant, she walks around and she takes food off people's plates, you know, because she wants to announce Cloris Leachman is here and she's going to do some bits. Hillary Duff was on the show. She walked over to her with some scissors and started cutting her hair. She didn't like her haircut. She was going to cut her hair. And the thing that she would always do with me is she would lick the back of my neck. She would walk up to me. I would be sitting watching the monitors and she would lick the back of my neck. And I didn't know what to say because I didn't want to insult her and say, Cloris, you're in your mid-80s. You just had a tuna fish sandwich. I don't want you licking my neck. So I didn't know how to get out of it, but it turned into this bit where she just would love to do it. So I finally, I saw her on the internet doing like a knockoff of those Go Daddy commercials, like a Go Granny commercial. And in it, she licks a guy's neck. So I thought I got it. I got it. So Monday morning, she walks in. She starts to walk over to lick my neck. I go, no, 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 no. I said, you stay away from me. You stay the fuck away from me, okay? I saw what you did. What are you talking about? I saw what you did. You licked another man's neck. This is what I thought we had. You know, we had this bond between the two of us. And she says, immediately now she has a new bit, which is fine. She says, oh, my goodness. I was thinking of you the whole time. I said, never again. Don't you ever lick my neck again. She goes, never? I go, I'll let you know. So then she said, how will I know? And I said, one day I'll be wearing a red silk scarf. (laughs) And then you'll know you can lick my neck. She says, okay. So she would occasionally come to set and look over at me and go, there's no scarf, and walk away. You know, she had a new bit. She was happy. Last night of shooting, three in the morning, we're outside the stage shooting something outside, and I realized, oh, shit, this could be the last episode. I didn't know. So I ran to wardrobe. I said, I need a red scarf. I need a red scarf. So they gave me a red scarf. I threw the red scarf on. I went over. She was standing there getting ready to do her scene. I just kind of nonchalantly stood next to her until she noticed me. And she looked over at me. And then cool as a cucumber, she said, it's not silk. And she walked away. (laughs) (laughs) 
Sebastian Maniscalco. Yeah, I did a pilot with Sebastian, and I didn't know who Sebastian was until, uh, uh, you know, my friend said, uh, there's this comedian, he's hilarious, uh, I've worked with him on stuff, and I watched him, and I was like, good Lord, this guy is amazing. I mean, just the, the, the mannerisms he has on stage is just, he can make anything funny. Uh, I was actually at the comedy store not long ago just with some friends for the heck of it, and, and, and Sebastian was there, and so I got to talk to him afterwards. But then Chris D'Elia came up afterwards and starts doing a Sebastian impersonation, and it was, and it was, it was, it was good. He did a good job. And what person... Who is a six degree separation in your life, technically? Sebastian is one of their favorite comedians and is a big supporter of his. Jerry Seinfeld. That is correct. That's right. Sir. I know. I know just Jerry's a, a, a big fan of his and, and had him on his show and everything. And also counseled him, I think, during our process as well. And quite possibly might have disagreed with some things I did with the pilot. But hey, everybody's got an opinion. I get it. But uh, we did a pilot, and uh, unfortunately, it was one of those uh, that didn't get on. And we got thrown a real curveball with that one. Um, it was for NBC. And I remember that uh, Bob Greenblatt, um, who I don't know really well, was the president of NBC at the time. And I just remember them saying at the table read, there needs to be cookies. There needs to be cookies for, for Bob. And I thought, really? <laughs> <laughs> Is that what we're doing? We gotta have cookies, so we got him cookies, and he didn't eat them, by the way, which I was a little—I was a little offended by. We went to all the trouble, but Bob had not read the script. Bob had not—you know—other people were dealing with it, um, uh, and he came to the table read and decided he did not like the story. And that's a little late in the game to not like a story, and it's terrifying. And basically, the note session was, and he didn't. He went off with people, and 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 he gave their notes, and and then he, he was had other things to do. So the other people came to us and said, "Hey, these are the notes. He wants. He doesn't like the story." Well, that's a big note, you know, when you're getting ready to shoot on a Monday, and it's it's the Wednesday beforehand. And so we really regrouped, and Sebastian and the writer Austin Earl and I went back, and we just kind of said, all right, guys, there's no time to complain about this. Let's figure out a new story. And we had had some other stories that we had talked about before we landed on this one, so we kind of grabbed one of them and fleshed it out, and 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 it worked out. Um, and we also went back and forth with Sebastian because he's so animated that if you just, if you're that animated in the body of a sitcom, my fear is it would be distracting, but it's such a tool of his to not use it feels like you left some stuff you know uh you didn't leave everything out on the field so we did a device where he would talk to the camera um not unlike Seinfeld although he wasn't he would do it in the middle of a scene and and I thought it worked out worked pretty well ultimately the pilot did not get on and uh I don't think that's gonna hurt Sebastian in any way or his ticket sales or he's still a he's a he's a giant in that community and I know he's uh, working on a movie right now with that same writer so uh, uh I look forward to seeing what he does next Story engine. Yes. Story engine. To me, that is, if you can figure that out with a sitcom, you're going to save yourself a lot of late nights. Um, what is that thing you can lean on, if nothing else, to get a story out of? You know, on My Name is Earl, the story engine was that list. We knew that there can always be something on that list and it could be anything and we'll get a story out of it. We'll figure it out. That is a story engine for that show. Raising Hope, 
we're raising a baby. That's the story engine. Now you're going to do stories that have nothing to do with raising that baby. But if you sit and you work and you for a long time and you're trying to come up with another story, you know you at least have that parenting thing that you can go back to and figure out. Um, so to me, you know, a show like The Millers, which was with Will Arnett and Margot Martindale and Bo Bridges, that didn't have an appropriate story engine. It had a funny premise of a guy moving in, a guy's mother moving in with him after they both got divorced. But the story engine wasn't there. And then we floundered and we brought in Sean Hayes to try to figure stuff out. And anytime you're bringing in a new character after the first season, that might be trouble that you're running out of viable stories. So to me, my first question for anybody pitching a sitcom is, all right, well, what's the story engine at the end of the day? Where are you getting these stories from if you need to? Mike O'Malley. Mike O'Malley. When I met Mike O'Malley, he was coming off of the Mike O'Malley show on NBC, which I think beat my record on NBC of the ironically named Built to Last, which lasted three episodes. And I think his show lasted one or two. And he was stung by that, as anybody would be, especially when it was called The Mike O'Malley Show. And Alan Kirschenbaum and I had written the pilot for Yes, Dear, and we had had the, uh, the green light to go ahead and shoot it. And Mike was somebody that we really wanted to talk to about playing the role of Jimmy. Actually, his name was Mike at the time, but I think we changed it when it was O'Malley. And we had a meeting with him, and he had, took the meeting because we had the same agents at CAA, and he said he did not want to jump into another sitcom, and he was taking the meeting because he liked the script, and he heard good, good things about us, and it was more of a courtesy meeting. But what he did in that meeting, which I give him shit about, is he would grab the script and go, no, the character's great. I'm sure you have people coming in here doing it like this. And he would perform it poorly, which we had seen time and time again. And he goes, I'd do it more like this. And he'd do it perfectly, exactly the way we had envisioned it or better. And then he would put the script down on the table and go, but I don't want to do a sitcom right now. Just torturing us, you know, and I still give him grief about that. But he did the role. Uh, we had 122 great episodes with him. He was a powerhouse on that show. He was the glue that kind of kept the cast and everybody together down there as well. And, um, and because of our friendship, he called me one day about five years ago and said, do you want to write a Broadway musical? And I said, what the fuck are you talking about? And he goes, nah, it's just Jimmy Buffett. I, I've done something with him in the past. He wants to do a Broadway musical. And uh, and he was a fan of My Name is Earl. And I suggested that we write it together. And I, I said, look, I, I don't know anything about Broadway musicals. My son, my oldest, wants to work on Broadway. I should probably do this and meet some people and make some contacts and hopefully not burn any bridges. And... Uh, and so we did it. So Mike and I spent four years in a world we knew nothing about, laughing our asses off every day, going around the country, doing this show at different places, and uh, we will have that for the rest of our lives, that experience, which was, which was a lot of fun. Will Arnett. <laughs> Will. Will was, uh, Will, I know Will because of Mike O'Malley, they're friends, and Will... Um, Relationships, everybody. Absolutely, and Will, uh, Will I had met through Mike, and uh, it's actually, the funny story that comes to mind with Will is, you know, he was doing that show with Christina Applegate, and I heard that it was going down, and I texted him, and I said, hey man, you want to read this script? And then him and Jimmy Burroughs and I all had a meeting, and he- Jimmy Burroughs is the greatest multi-camera director, executive producer in the history of in television. In the history, in the history. 
and he agreed to do the Millers. And we had a great time on that show. For I mean, we had so much fun on that show, and it, it didn't go as long as, as we had hoped, but gosh, did we have fun. And I remember one day sitting with him at, uh, at uh, the set, and we were talking about stuff, and he was talking about how he got fired off this pilot, the pilot for Still Standing, which was a CBS pilot, which was years ago, and how ultimately he ended up um, getting arrested development after he was, he, was, he was fired from that. And I knew something that he didn't know, that I was in the punch-up room for that pilot. And I suggested during the pilot week, we don't need this scene. You're way too long. You don't need this scene at work. And they said, well, you know, we'd like to see his work. I go, see his work in episode two if you want to. And they said, well, you know, but it's the only scene Will Arnett's in. And I said, yeah, but I'm just saying you don't need the scene, you know. And ultimately they cut the scene. And then there was a domino effect where he got fired from that pilot. Now, my friend that wrote that pilot, as soon as the Millers picked up, he said, you're going to tell him you got him fired from my pilot? And I said, I didn't get him fired from the pilot. I just said the scene. He goes, no, you got him fired from the pilot. You're going to tell him? I said, no, I'm not going to tell him. But we were sitting there on set, and he told that story. And I said, so basically getting fired from that pilot was a good thing. He goes, well, I was very bummed at the time, but looking back on it, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I said, let me tell you a little story. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Burger King. Oh, Burger King. I uh, I worked at Burger King during the uh, night uh, the 2007 writer strike and uh gosh, I'll try to make this short, but I was, you know, years and years and years ago I was at a Roy Rogers Burgers in uh, Frederick, Maryland and I was working on Yes Dear at the time. But I was back visiting family and I was eating a hamburger and I was watching the people behind the counter and I thought I'm so spoiled now as a writer in Hollywood. I live behind gates. I work behind gates. Somebody brings me my lunch. I used to have jobs that, like, I used to mow lawns for 10 hours a day. I used to pump gas. Like, this is real work. Could I go back and do this real work? And I thought it'd be a fun book, maybe, to take a different minimum wage job for 30 days and then write about the job, write about what's funny about me as a spoiled Hollywood guy going back to work, meet the people, and then as a game show element, give pick one person, give them $10,000, and then move to the next job. And I thought that would be fun. Well, 
I never had time to do it. And then I watched 30 Days with Morgan Spurlacher comes on and Undercover Boss and, and you know, whatever. All these things like that felt similar to it a little bit were happening. And I thought, I'm going to miss the boat on this. But then it's like 10 years later and the writer's strike happens. And I thought, well, now I can't work. I wonder, let's just try it. Let's just try it. What the heck? I want to see if there's something there. So I went around to different fast food places. I went into a Burger King. I had an interview on the spot. The woman hired me and I started as a cashier um, slash janitor at Burger King. And I worked there for a month. Uh, I worked when my kids were in school because I didn't want to tell them, look, dad, dad was working on my name is Earl 14 hours a day and he didn't see you at all. Now we're not doing that show for a little while. And now I can't work with you. I can't see you because I'm working at Burger King. So I did it while they were in school. And it was funny because I was on this email chain with Bill Lawrence and David Shore and uh, Damon Lindelof from, from Lost. And, and we were all talking about the strike and they said, we should all have lunch. And I said, I can't, I'm working. And they said, ha, 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 you're working. You can't work, you're right. And I go, no, don't tell anybody, but I'm actually working at Burger King as a cashier. And then Bill Lawrence chimed in. He goes, I don't think this fucking guy's kidding. <laughs> I think he's serious. So I worked there for a month and I wrote little notes about it. And I thought maybe I'd write a book at some point. And at the end of the month, I did what I said I was going to do. I sat down with the manager and she's the person I had chosen because she was this really hardworking, great person and I gave her a check for $10,000 and she was confused and and didn't know what was going on and I tried to explain to her that I was a writer and I told her I was writing a book and the publisher was paying this money because I didn't want it to seem awkward that it was my money and uh, and and I left and she called me the next day and said we googled you and we love my name is Earl and I told Burger King what happened and they're nervous they want to talk to you they heard you writing a book and so Burger King called me and they said, uh, Mr. Garcia, I understand you were working at our, uh, at our store and, uh, and you're writing a book. And I said, relax, don't worry about it. I'm not probably ever going to write the book. I got material. Maybe I'll use it in something else. But I got to tell you, it's the cleanest thing I've ever seen. I mean, I thought this would turn me off fast food. That's what my wife warned me. And it didn't. It was unbelievably well run it was so clean it was great and they said you mentioned burger king as much as you want you know <laughs> don't worry about it and they gave me a card for free burger king for life so i have uh, so i have that i have that in my wallet i will never i will never never starve and usually when i use it which is fairly rare i become the oprah of that burger king because anybody in line behind me or in front of me if i can get to them in time gets their meal uh comped by my, uh, my my secret magical card and uh, everybody's happy your proudest moment in show business i go back to the, the 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 speech i mean winning the emmy is is was a huge accomplishment and something that i'll always have and and not a lot of people get to do that you know they give one away each year for writing and uh and 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 i feel honored to have to have won it um but it was that speech it was delivering a speech and getting the laughs and looking out in that crowd of my peers and people I respected and 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 Conan O'Brien saying a complimentary thing to me when I walked off stage, I, I still have to say that that's probably my proudest moment. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Every single thing I've ever done has been fueled by disappointment and hate. And just, just an anger of wanting to prove people wrong. Every single thing. 
Yes Dear came on. They eviscerated it. The critics just crushed it. This is terrible. They crushed it for the entire six years, and every day I would go in and go, guess what? It's going to stay on. I'm going to keep working, and it's going to stay on. My name is Earl. Uh, after I wrote it as a spec, I gave it to Fox to do as a show, and they said, this is not a TV show. And I spent a year and a half fighting and pitching it and trying to get it picked up, and finally Kevin Riley put it on NBC. And then when it got canceled, I was so mad that they canceled it, I went back over to Kevin Riley, who was now at Fox, and I pitched Raising Hope, and I said, let's get another show on immediately and show them what fools they were, you know? Um, so there's been, a, there's been a whole lot of things, and, and, and I tell people that too. Take any disappointment and turn it around and use it for fuel. My, my son is a hockey player. It's funny, you mentioned hockey, and he's a hockey player. And he went out for tryouts for a hockey team one time, and there was an A team and a B team. And, of course, he wants to make the A team. And he's probably 10 years old. And they tell him the tryouts are Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But Saturday they tell him he's on the B team. Now, Sunday there's still another tryout. You go, you skate, whatever. But he was very upset on Saturday night. And you counsel your son and you, 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 know, you say all the things that you would say to your, to your son in that moment. And then we were driving to hockey on Sunday. And I said, you ready to play hard today? And he said, why? And I go, oh, you have to, you have to play harder today than you played on Friday and Saturday. And he said, Dad, they already picked. They're not going to change their minds. I'm on the B team. And I said, yeah, I know. Today's the first day you start showing them they made a mistake. And he got a smile on his face, and he got it, you know. And he went out there, and he played his heart out. And to me, that's always been, and I don't know what it says about me, whatever, but there's never a more motivating factor to me than somebody saying you can't do something. Lastly, what advice do you have for the young person growing up in a small town, watching television shows, thinking to themselves, God, how do I get in this crazy business? And once I figure out how to get there, how do I stay there? How do I grow? And how do I go from the lowest level position, getting coffee and washing dishes, to three shows consecutively in syndication? Yeah. I mean, it's a tough business. You know, you have to know that going in, you know, and, and, and there's a million different roads to get to where you want to be. Um, and so I think you need to, and now, especially these days, you have YouTube, you can go shoot your own stuff. You can have so many ways to showcase your stuff. But I think my biggest pieces of advice is you need to be where and around the people who you want to be. And that's why I became a writer's uh, PA is because I wanted to be a, around the writers because so much, and you talk about this so much, it's connections. It's so much about connections. And you got to make your own connections. I didn't know anybody in Hollywood. I packed up my car and came out here. you got to make your own connections. And so that's the number one thing I would say. You know, And if you want to be a writer, write. Keep writing. Write what you love. Write what you know. Um, pick a sitcom and that you love and sit down and write it and force yourself to write it. I've told people I thought were funny on the East Coast. I said, write a sitcom. And then a lot of them just go to try to write it and they can't. And they go, okay, well, at least I know. I can't do this. You know, other people write it and they've come out here and they've, they've, they've uh, made, it, made uh, a name for themselves. So that would be the number one thing is get around the people 
you want to be and take any job you can to get in there and do that job like it's the most important job on the show with a smile on your face, wash the dishes, deliver the scripts, do whatever you can with the with the most cheery at you know attitude that you can because and this transitions into the next thing I'll say because then when you get a chance to hopefully write on a show you want to be the positive force in the room. There are people that get jobs on writing staffs that do not contribute as much as other people because you want them in the room. You are going to war with a blank page every week and you need positivity. You need the guy at two in the morning who's going to uh, pour water all over his body like he's doing a flash dance routine just to get the room to wake up, you know? Um, you want that. And so. I would say positivity is a huge, huge asset if you can have it. And then also, when you do get to the point where you're developing your own shows, every experience with the network and studio, to me, is an audition for your next opportunity with them. Because this is a business where everything is almost impossible to get something on the air. Lightning has to strike. You've got to be so lucky. You need to write the right show, get the right cast for the right network. They've got to put it in the right time slot at the right time of year. You know, everything has to align for it to happen. So mostly you fail. And so if you treat every opportunity as an audition for the next job, they're going to want to work with you again. They're going to want to give you more chances. I've talked to people that say, well, I'm arguing, I'm, I'm fighting with them about this, but I don't even like this show anyway. I wanted to do this other show. And I say, well, you're not going to get a chance to do the other show if after this one, they don't, they don't let you in the door, you know? So again, it goes back to positivity and treating people the way you would want to be treated. There's plenty of dicks in this town and you can be one of them if you want, but that's, I'd never want to take that risk. I don't think I'm good enough to be a complete asshole. You know, I rather bank on the fact that, okay, yeah, that guy's actually fun to work with, so we're gonna give him more chances. And when he fails, he'll fail, as I have done many times. And when he succeeds, we'll be happy because we're, you know, we're succeeding together. Greg Garcia, <laughs> you are a force of nature. I don't know about that. Wow. <laughs> what you said was so important and you're gonna change a lot of lives because of this podcast. I really, truly mean it. You really affected me, and I'm very grateful you did this. Thank oh, well, you. Well, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you having me on. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, will Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Misty 100, December 31st, 2018, New Year's Eve. Heading reads, top of the pods, five stars. And the comment reads, definitely in a league of your own here, old boy. Wow. It's nice to know I'm in a league of my own. Not nice to know I'm an old boy. Anyway, thank you so much, Misty100. Congratulations. You are a winner. And that wraps up part two of our podcast 
I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with AquaTrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BARRY and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to ikilljfk.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. Neil Brennan. Try to raise the bar. Try to do things in a unique, try to twist the formula, try to improve on the formula. Cause that's the, that moves shit that kind of moves things along. Um, and, but, and mostly be nice to, and that's the thing that I did. That's my, uh, that's the thing that I, that I work on the most now is just like working and meditating and thinking about how to be a, a nicer person by nature, not, there are times when I'm like just faking it till I make it, but there are times Barry where I'm genuinely nice to people <laughs> and it comes from a real core place. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been industry standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. you get out. All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.